In John 17, 6, he reminds them that he revealed God to them. And as we've done, we've learned through this series, we reveal God to others when our lives are aligned with his character, his will, and his kingdom. In 17, 8, he reminds them that he spoke God's truth in power and authority. And when our actions and our words line up, we can speak God's word with integrity and conviction, and it can bring freedom to those around us. And in 17, 2, he prayed for their protection because he's leaving them to make disciples in a culture that's soon going to crucify him. They're against Jesus, and there's a good chance they're going to be against his disciples as well. And so he prays for their protection, and he prays that they would be sanctified in verse 19 of chapter 17. Sean spoke about this last week. When I was growing up, saved and sanctified were two words that sort of went together, like peanut butter and jelly or or mashed potatoes and gravy. But the difference is with mashed potatoes and gravy, you sort of know what you're getting, and you can appreciate it for exactly what it is. Can I get an amen? So here's the ground rules with me. Some of you know them. When I preach, I come from a Pentecostal tradition. I am not intimidated by noise or babies crying or amens or hallelujahs or yahoos. Any of that is perfectly fine. Let's just try it a couple of times. Let's get, give me an, an amen. amen. Give me a, that's right. Give me a, praise the Lord. Give me a, woohoo. You guys are good. You guys are good. So feel free to insert any of those at any moment in the message. All right, there we go, right there. So shake that bush. I don't even know what that means, but it doesn't seem appropriate. So in verse 19, he prays that they would be sanctified. And uh, Sean preached on this last week, and so we're gonna, I just want to back up a little bit and talk about what he said. Sean said this, we are set apart by Jesus, for Jesus, so others may know Jesus. Anyone who was paying attention last week will remember this. And he also said this in so many words, we have been left here to minister to those who have been ravaged and torn apart by the brokenness of the world. You know, 1 Peter 5.8 tells us that we have an enemy. We have an opponent, so we should be clear-minded and, and alert because our opponent, our enemy, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Maybe you know someone, perhaps your one life, that person God's put in your life specifically for the purpose of, of using you to sp- God to speak to their lives through you. Perhaps your one life is one of those who's been devoured or is being devoured by the devil and his schemes and the brokenness of this world. And the question we always should ask ourselves is, do we care? Because as unfortunate as it may be, as believers, we can sometimes see our personal relationship with God as the whole point, the final destination. You've heard someone say, maybe you say to yourself, as long as me and God are good, I'm good. But, but that's not it. You know, we sing this song. Maybe you know it. If you know it, sing with me. What a fellowship, what a joy divine, leaning on the everlasting arms. What a blessedness, what a peace is mine, leaning on the everlasting I think we know the chorus better. Let's try it. Leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarm. Let's stop right there. Okay. Good job. 
leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms. And many of us think that's the point. But that's not the point. That's a promise, but that's not the point. We are sanctified not to be safe and secure from all alarms, but we are sanctified for a larger purpose. So Jesus and his disciples are there in the upper room for the Passover dinner. Alan explained the background and the purpose of all of that. And he even talked about um, what Matthew and Mark, those first two biographers of Jesus' life, talked about. Matthew and Mark recount, in fact, all the, all the, uh, the Gospels recount this story. And Matthew and Mark, they talk about the main thing they remember is that Jesus sort of identified himself with the Passover lamb. His body is the bread that they break, and his blood is the, is the new covenant, his blood that will soon be shed. And Luke, the third biographer of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, includes that, but he also includes something else. Now, parents, you've taken your kids to nice restaurants, you've organized the evening out, and, and, you, and your biggest concern is not that they will use the wrong fork, your biggest concern is they're going to make a scene at some point in the evening. And this is exactly what happens. Luke records that an argument breaks out between the disciples. The argument is um, not about the food, not about what they're going to do afterwards. The argument is about who was the greatest among them. Anyone remember this? This is a place where you say, that's right. Now, I would like to think that they were all arguing that the other was the greatest. No, you're the greatest. No, you're the greatest. No, 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 no. You're the greatest. I picture roles being thrown and people throwing, you know, glasses of wine in each other's faces. I said you're the greatest. But we know human nature and the tendency we have to compare ourselves with others and to determine our personal value and worth based on that comparison. And we also know that this is not the first time the disciples have got into an argument and questioned uh, who was the greatest because of their desire for preeminence. Sometimes that raises its ugly head in our own lives, doesn't it? It is a testament to the amazing grace and patience of Jesus that he didn't grab them by the ear and march them out of the upper room and say, young lady, young man, you're not coming back again until you behave better. But no, Jesus, he does stand up, but he does two things. He says something, and then he does something. So Luke records what he says, Luke 22, 25 through 27. Luke says, he says this, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. Now, I'm going to leave that up there. You can read through that, but I'm going to sort of just paraphrase a little bit. Jesus says to them this, here's how the world works. You see how the kings lord it over the commoners, powerful people lord it over weak people, and make themselves feel good by saying that they're helping them, but you're not to be like that. In my kingdom, the roles and the honor are reversed. The greatest in my kingdom is not the one at the head of the table, but the one who serves those seated at the table. And then Jesus says, watch me. He doesn't say, watch me, but he does something, and they all watch him. Now, what Jesus does next is um, a reflection of his deep understanding of who he was, his true value. John 13, 3 through 5 says this, Jesus, note this, one, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands, two, that he had come from God, and three, that he was going back to God. So Jesus knows what he is supposed to be about. 
He knows where he came from, and he knows where he is going. And verse 4 says, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. How many of you guys have ever been to a foot washing by a show of hands? We're not going to do a foot washing today, so everyone take a deep breath. <laughs> We're not going to do that. That's right. <coughs> we are not going to do a foot washing. But verse 5 says, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Cyril of Alexandria, one of the early church fathers, said this, Christ is ministered to by the whole of creation of rational and holy beings. We sang it earlier, cherubim and seraphim falling down before you. He is praised by the seraphim. He is tended to by the services of the universe. He is the equal of God, the Father, in his throne and kingdom. Yet taking the servant's place, he washes the apostles' feet. Let's pick it back up in John chapter 13, verse 12. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said this to them. Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have just given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. I read this earlier this week, and I liked it. And I think this is a good prayer for us as a church. Let our exaltation be in our humility, and our glory be in the fact that we don't need or want glory. So this is the context this is, by the way, this was just the introduction, as a friend of mine used to say. Now we're getting ready to the meat of this. Jump over to John chapter 17, and we're going to go back to this prayer that Jesus is praying. And we're going to start in verse 18. Just as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. If you've got your Bible open, underline that. Verse 19, it is for their sakes that I sanctify myself so that they too may be sanctified. And if you carry your Bibles open, underline that too. In fact, just underline all the way, 18 to 21, it's just good. Verse 20 says, I ask not only on behalf of these men around this table, but also on behalf of those who will believe on me through their message so that those seated at the table and those who will come in the future may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be one in us so that the world may believe. Say that with me. So that the world may believe that you sent me. We have been sanctified and set apart so that others may know Jesus. Verse 18, let's go back to that. Just as you sent me into the world, just as you sent me into the world, so I 
have sent them into the world. Now, how was he sent into the world? What was his mission? What was his motivation? Before the service started, we gathered in the back and shared communion with those who were participating. And, and I read this passage from Luke 14. Many of you might remember this. Jesus, early in his ministry, was invited to speak in the synagogue, and he opened the scriptures up to the prophet Isaiah, and he spoke these words. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Did you catch that? Just as Jesus was sent into the world, he has sent us into the world. He has anointed us to preach good news to the poor. When was the last time you got a chance to preach good news to the poor? He has anointed us to proclaim liberty and freedom to the oppressed. When was the last time you got a chance to do that? He has anointed us to bring sight to the blind and to proclaim God's favor. You see, we are set apart. We are sanctified for the benefit of others. Verse 19 says, it is for their sakes that I sanctify them myself. It is for their sakes that I sanctify myself. James Hastings, one of these writers that I read about this, he's an 18th century guy. The Christian life does not recognize, the Christian life does not recognize the existence of righteousness from which love is absent. Did you catch that? I wish I had that on a slide, but I don't. The Christian life does not recognize the existence of any righteousness apart from which love is absent. First Corinthians said it this way, if I don't have love, I am nothing. You see, we have been sanctified for the sake of others. In my ignorance as a child, going back to that saved and sanctified, I thought it meant that I was saved and now by my rigid adherence to the rules and the good works that I can stay in right standing with God. But Jesus didn't say that. He didn't say, I sanctify myself for the sake of my own soul to satisfy my own heart or conscience to validate my own superior holiness or my own moral integrity before God. He didn't say that. He said, I sanctify myself for the sake of others. Verse 21, so that the world may believe. Our personal sanctification and our missional call are so knotted together that they cannot be separated. We're not sanctified for our own benefit. We're not sanctified for us to look good. We are sanctified for the sake of others. Again, James Hastings says this, oftentimes we talk about the individual gospel and the social gospel as if they are two different things. When I was growing up, the gospel, Jesus preached, crucified, dead, and buried, and now risen again, that was the gospel. The social gospel was something very suspect. Often we talk about the individual gospel and the social gospel as if they are two different things with little in common. But Jesus here has bound them together, and what Jesus has bound together, let no man separate. The individual gospel says, God so loved the world, he sent his son. And now the gospel, the social gospel says, God so loved the world that he now sends his children. 
It's you and me. Now, <clears throat> our concern with the social gospel is that sometimes the good works were divorced from any real spiritual reality in the individual's life. Doing good just to do good is, I mean, it's admirable. It's, it's generous even for anyone to try to, to do. You know, the, the saying is, I'll, I'll give my life for their sake, for the service to the world, for the good of mankind. But 1 Corinthians reminds us that doing that apart from love is nothing. I am so thankful to work alongside in this community so many wonderful people who have taken the example of Jesus seriously. They volunteer their time, they give generously of their lives so that other lives can be made better. And one of those groups has a very special place in my heart. It's the, uh, the Lawrence County CASA program. Um, many of you know about CASAs. CASA are child advocates appointed by a judge to give voice to children who find themselves through no fault of their own in the court system. And just over a year ago, I was encouraged by Bethany Bell, Bethany Morris at the time, to consider becoming a CASA. And I'd heard of CASAs when I lived out west and was serving in a church in Nevada. The seed was planted then, but... Um, Something happened when she spoke to me. It sort of popped out of his head and sort of, I half-heartedly agreed to, uh, to go through the training and uh, see what would happen after that. But what I learned through the process is that we are surrounded by more evil and brokenness than most of us can even imagine. And once I began to be exposed to it, I couldn't ignore the opportunity to help in some way. I found that I have the ability as a CASA to reach into brokenness and evil and just tragic, ravaged lives even more effectively than I do preaching from a pulpit on Sunday morning. I have learned more about mission and purpose by doing it than by ever preaching or listening to a sermon. Now here at Sherwood Oaks, we have made a ministry uh, to at-risk families and children, one of our priorities. We believe that mentoring across generations is a value worth hammering on, and what that looks like for you and what it looks like for me may be, may be different. But if you are starting to understand that being a follower of Jesus is about more than following some rules or memorizing a few scriptures, then I want to invite you to join us in this, in this ministry of at-risk children and families. Here's a couple of ways you can do that. Ask me about CASA. I would love to talk to you about getting involved and being an advocate for children in the judicial system. If you have an extra bed, an extra room, an extra space in your heart, pray about becoming a foster parent or a safe families family. If you want to know more about safe families, there is going to be an informational meeting at Bloomington East next week, uh, about 12.15. And if you want to know more about what that is or even have questions about it, ask me. I can give you some information. There's some sign-ups in the foyer as well. And three, and this is a big one, but if you have felt God tugging at your heart to adopt, I know that Sean and Amber Green would love to talk to you about the first steps of what that would look like. Here's what I know. In my years, 53 years of life and uh, about 35 of those being in some degree of ministry, that the Christian is educated in the school of service. 
We are not saved by our works. I don't want anyone to go out thinking that what we do good makes us right before God. That is not the case. We are not saved by our works, but we learn what it means to be a Christian by the doing. Forgiveness is given to those who forgive. We receive when we learn to give. We obtain mercy by showing mercy. Losing our lives is the only way to gain our lives. And all of those things require that we be engaged in people's lives. It is not in the cloister or the cave or the chapel that we sanctify ourselves. It is, it is in going boldly and eagerly into a broken world that we prove our purpose before God. They will know we are Christians by our love, love for one another, certainly, but also for those who, as Sean said, have been ravaged by the cruel and self-focused system of our world. In the end, I don't believe I will hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful worship leader. Well done, good and faithful preacher. Well done, good and faithful piano player. He will say, I pray, well done, good and faithful servant. 